This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Vaselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the new Secretary of Health and Human Services isn't letting any moss grow under her feet. As predicted. Sylvia Matthews Burrell has already announced some management changes at HHS just a few weeks after taking the helm. She's putting one person exclusively in charge of the federal insurance marketplace, the originally troubled healthcare.gov, which even the president had to admit was disastrous. There will also uh, be a number two person installed at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to oversee the health care law's continued rollout. Uh, these may seem like small changes, but the intention is to make the department more efficient with a clear chain of command. It should work to streamline efforts as we move closer to the next round of opener enrollments uh, in November. That's right. And they've tapped a top executive from United Healthcare for the job. Andy Slavitt is with Optum, which is a division of United Healthcare, which helped fix the early problems with the federal exchange. And he'll be responsible for overseeing the exchange moving forward, as well as Medicare and Medicaid. It would be naive to think there won't be some glitches along the way. But I think this is a bold first step on the part of Secretary Burwell. And I think it will inspire more confidence in the system and the Department of Health and Human Services in general. Well, that's a good thing uh, because there's still not as much confidence as we would like to see on the state level yet, especially in those states that suffered a rocky rollout of their insurance exchange. You know, Maryland's exchange never truly got off the ground. Now they're joining forces with Connecticut's Access Health Connecticut. And certainly in Massachusetts, which was a leader in rolling out Romneycare. Now, though, they're seeking to recoup tens of millions of dollars spent on contracts and companies who botched their states based insurance exchanges. But also in Massachusetts are some of the leading thinkers in the country around innovation. And today we're joined by an expert in the consumer approach to health care. Our guest today is uh, Regina Herzlinger, Ph.D. health policy expert, and Nancy R. McPherson, professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School, where her focus is on innovation in health care. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, stops by to correct another misstatement about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Regina Herzlinger in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A scathing review of the VA has been sent to the president's office in the wake of the ongoing investigation into mismanagement of patients at Veterans Administration health facilities around the country. A letter sent by the Office of the Special Counsel details the consistently ignored warnings by the VA about dangerous practices that jeopardized patient safety. The independent federal investigative agency found the VA consistently ignored warnings from internal whistleblowers and that the VA did nothing to correct the problems. Meanwhile, another whistleblower has come forward from the Phoenix VA hospital where the scandal first broke. A scheduling assistant said she was a keeper of a secret list of patients who had to wait months for medical care, some of whom died waiting. She said she was told to keep the records of those veterans awaiting access to care for months in a secret drawer because of the VA's policy of ensuring patients had an appointment within 14 days of requesting one. She also claims top brass of the VA knew of the extreme delays and of the cover-ups of those delays for at least two years before they came to light. Market forces 
and drug prices. Insurers are exerting pressure on drug makers to begin negotiating down the prices of some of their more expensive drugs or risk being replaced entirely by cheaper alternatives. Spending on specialty drugs rose 14.1 percent last year and by even greater amounts in previous years, according to Express Scripts. Most of the increased spending comes not from new drugs or new patients, but from price increases on older drugs that can often exceed 10 percent year after year. Many other countries control drug prices in some manner, so drug companies have become dependent on increasing prices in the U.S. And health care pricing overall predicted to go up in 2015, a little under 7 percent. Annual health cost increases have slowed in recent years, due in part to several factors, more scrutiny on health costs, the recession leading to fewer patients seeking treatment because they couldn't afford it, and higher deductibles leading many Americans to forego preventive or elective surgeries for out-of-pocket costs. It still pales in comparison to annual health care price hikes in the 1990s and 2000s when it was customary to have double-digit price increases every year. And remember the old adage, reading is fundamental? Well, apparently it is. The American Academy of Pediatrics is now urging its members to recommend parents begin reading aloud to their babies starting in infancy. Studies show enhanced language and learning abilities in those babies exposed early to reading out loud by the parents. It's also counter to a newer, more disturbing trend. New mothers increasingly distracted by smartphones and the latest crop of babies slipping in language development as a result. Reading, just what Dr. Seuss ordered. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Regina Herzlinger, PhD, health policy expert, and Nancy R. McPherson, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, where her focus is on innovation in healthcare. Dr. Herzlinger coined the phrase consumer driven healthcare and was instrumental in creating consumer driven health plans. And Dr. Herzlinger twice uh, won the Thompson Book of the Year Award, has written numerous uh, best selling books, including Who Killed Healthcare? America's $2 trillion Healthcare Problem and Consumer driven care. Often cited by Becker's Hospital Review as one of the 40 smartest people in healthcare, Dr. Herzlinger earned her bachelor's from MIT and her PhD at Harvard Business School, where she's the first woman to be tenured and chaired. Uh, we are pleased that you're with us today. I'm thrilled to be here, and please call me Reggie. Well, you've been called the godmother of consumer-driven healthcare, and having coined that phrase and developed the concept which calls for consumers to begin exerting their purchasing power on healthcare industry to truly accelerate meaningful reform. So when you first began this research, it was more of an academic concept, but now it seems uh, to be evolving trend in the healthcare industry. Can you describe for our listeners your vision of consumer driven healthcare in its power to transform our very expensive and inefficient health system. So my vision for consumer driven healthcare is that consumers would be given the money that others now spend on their behalf, employers or governments, and they the consumers would buy healthcare. And in doing that, they would transform the healthcare system to give them what they want. And what American consumers want is they want choice, they want control, they want convenience, not because they're narcissistic wanters, but because they work so hard. And most of all, they want good prices. 
and that transformation happily is beginning to occur in the American healthcare system. Well, Reggie, I think uh, we've certainly seen the wave of consumer participation of a new kind with the first round of open enrollment on the insurance exchanges created by the Affordable Care Act. And what we've seen with that is uh, kind of a lack of awareness or knowledge on how to even purchase the right insurance plan for yourself or your family. And then a second wave of consumer uncertainty when they've gotten insurance about how exactly to navigate this healthcare system. I think you were, you've used the phrase that uh, healthcare is inconveniently packaged and you were just <laughs> referencing that a bit. It's a great, it's a great description. But Maybe you could talk with us a little bit about what what are the strategies for getting the guidance and the information to consumers so they do understand what they're getting, they do understand what their money is buying them. So first of all, let's talk about what's happened from the exchanges. On the government exchange, there have been fabulous results. So what's happened is in these supermarkets, rather than having a choice of one insurer and one plan, there are, in the average government-run supermarkets, there are 47 different plans and 11 or more insurers. So an additional insurer lowers the benchmark premiums by 4%. In other words, if you have more competition, you lower costs. Mm -hmm. So from the private exchanges, one of which the biggest one is run by a firm called the Aon Hewitt, 80% of the people on their exchange used a comparison tool that enabled them to compare the design features of all these great choices. And 66% of the people on this private exchange also searched for the characteristics of hospitals and doctors compared to 18%. In other words, when people shop for themselves, they're more prone to use information. Now, as you said very smartly, the information is not so great. So there is a whole new industry that is forming to provide the sort of information that people can understand and need. For example, a firm called Castlight, which purports to cast light <laughs> on the prices that uh, doctors and hospitals and others are really paid. This is a relatively small firm with $13 million in revenues and about $400 million in cumulative losses. It just went public. It was valued at $3.5 billion, mm. this teeny-weeny firm. And the reason is that people namely investors, understand that there is, with these exchanges, there is a huge unfulfilled appetite for information mm -hmm. about prices and quality, and they're going to reward the entrepreneurs who provide them. You've identified the villains driving much of the cost growth in healthcare, and you've spoken about the iron triangle of third parties who have overtaken the healthcare industry. So help illuminate for our listeners that landscape. So when somebody else controls your money, when somebody else spends their money on the people's behalf, 
inevitably they'll spend the money in a way that conveniences them rather than that serves the interests of the people. And what's changed with the Health Care Reform Act is, first of all, more and more people are able to buy health insurance. That's wonderful. And secondly, the exchanges, the supermarkets have democratized the control of health care monies and given them back to the people who really are the sources of those funds. So in the past, what's happened is that the status quo healthcare providers just got fatter and fatter because there was no countervailing pressure to say, look, it, we just can't keep stuffing money down this endless mall. We now have consumers exerting countervailing pressures, and the results that we see from the exchanges, which is that when consumers buy their own health plans, many of them buy far lower-cost health plans than their employers have purchased in the past. Those far lower-cost health plans exert a lot of pressure on the providers to slim down. So the heroes in this story are the healthcare reform legislation itself. CMMI, which is a $10 billion venture capital firm that's housed within the federal government. It's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which has funded a lot of the innovations. The venture capital community, which funded exchanges that compete with Aon Hewitt and with companies like Castlight, and then the entrepreneurs themselves who've created new kinds of insurance policies, new supermarkets, tools that will make it possible for a consumer to shop intelligently. Well, Rajit, the Affordable Care Act certainly uh, sought and I think is successfully in many ways rectifying the lack of access to health care by providing mm-hmm. coverage for millions of uninsured. And But you've also looked at the inequities on the provider side and noted, and rightly so, that providers that treat a large cadre of Medicare and particularly Medicaid patients are paid only a fraction of the compensation for uh, providers when they treat patients with private insurance. And but there's, there's still this burden on providers who treat a large percentage of uh, of the publicly insured. Now, mm-hmm. you have a solution that you say is economically. So tell us about your alternative approach to this question of unequal compensation for providers based on the type of insurance. Well, it's very stupid public policy to underpay providers so drastically as is done with Medicaid and somewhat as is done with Medicare because it has two very bad side effects, and that is the refusal of providers to treat Medicaid patients. In some states, up to 60% of providers, meaning doctors and even hospitals, will not see Medicaid patients, an increasing trend Furthermore, I believe that a number of people are not attracted to medicine as a profession because of this fear of underpayment. And thirdly, many of the providers just shift their costs to the commercial payers. 
meaning uh, private sector payers, whether mm-hmm. employers or individuals who buy health insurance. So in Switzerland, which the Commonwealth Fund just found as the world's second best healthcare system, in Switzerland, there is no Medicare and there is no Medicaid. Hmm. Everybody buys private insurance. So we don't have this bizarre cost shifting, which now is creating perverse incentives Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. the commercial payers to minimize or drop insurance. In Switzerland, where everybody's privately insured, you have equal access because the provider will be paid the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great system. We're speaking today with Regina Herzlinger, PhD health policy expert, and Nancy R. McPherson, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, where her focus is on innovating in healthcare. She's been dubbed the godmother of consumer-driven healthcare. You know, I want to pull the thread a little, Reggie. Uh, You've been steeped in the private sector. You've been involved in a number of publicly traded uh, companies. Uh, We've seen the onset of the uh, accountable care organizations, consumer-driven plans and focused health factories. What is the future going to hold? And a lot of it seems to be dominated by sort of equalizing out opportunity by putting maybe everybody into the private sector. What else is on your mind? What else are the people that you're associating with thinking about uh, in the healthcare world today? First of all, in Switzerland, although people buy private insurance, which ensures equality of access, the government funds the poor who could not otherwise afford to buy private insurance. So there is a role for the government in Switzerland. To me, that's what equity is all about, and that is the appropriate role for government. So on the provider side, uh, clearly the healthcare system is a non-system. It's terribly fragmented. The IT is very primitive, so there's very poor connectivity, and as a result, There is over-treatment and under-treatment and high-quality and low-quality, and there is a drive toward consolidation, which is much needed. How the consolidation will occur is not exactly clear. Will it be through everything for everybody, vertically integrated provider organizations, which are called accountable care organizations, and or will it be through organizations that have more modest kinds of agendas and that aim, for example, to treat everything? I believe the latter will prevail, and what we'll see is reorganization of the healthcare delivery system, not into one massive vertically organized mm-hmm. system that can do everything for everybody, but into more integrated systems of care that are focused on care as the consumer defines it. So if I had congestive heart failure, I would have up to 34 comorbidities. I would be desperately looking Mm -hmm. for some place that would integrate all of these. 
every provider would know what the other providers in the system did. So one trend in the integration trend, I believe it is the bundlers rather than the everything for everybody who mm -hmm. will ultimately succeed. Along the way, we're seeing some very useful other kinds of innovations. For example, there are about 1,200 retail medical centers right now. They obviously could serve as a terrific delivery point, mm -hmm. for example, for helping people with chronic diseases comply with their daunting daily regimens. Some are integrated with urgent care centers. Some have a lot of IT, uh, like the company called First Medical. Some focus on chronic diseases, like ChenMed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think these innovations on the retail part of healthcare are also tremendous. Clearly, they lower the costs mm -hmm. of care by keeping people out of the emergency room and helping them to stay mm -hmm. well. Well, Reggie, we are very interested in and engaged in educating and training the next generation of healthcare providers and policy leaders for the future. And I know that you have been very focused uh, in your teaching career and as co-founder of the Healthcare Initiative, which looks to immerse MBA students who are interested in healthcare in a variety of health disciplines during their studies. Tell us about the approach that you've helped to develop at Harvard that really does train these students for a healthcare industry and system as you would like to see it. So I did a survey of the top 26 schools in healthcare administration. The number one word in their course descriptions was organization, system, policy. The words entrepreneurship and innovation occurred 26 times. Simultaneously, I interviewed the CEOs of 58 of the globe's most innovative healthcare companies. What do they want? What do they need for their employees? And they said, number one word was innovation. And essentially, they said the current schools that are teaching healthcare administration are not providing us with what we need. So at Harvard, we have six courses in innovating in healthcare, and uh, two of the courses enable the students to go out and do field studies in things that interest them. This year, five of my students are leaving the Harvard Business School to start those companies. We give them the tools and the confidence and the contacts so they could innovate the healthcare system. I also did a MOOC, which is a massively open online course for Harvard X, which is a joint venture between Harvard and MIT to do online courses on innovating in healthcare. And we had tens of thousands of students. 20% of them were PhDs. Well, Another 20% were doctors. The course was entirely focused on the tools that you need in order to commercialize your brilliant, innovative ideas. 
about how to make healthcare better and cheaper. I have a number of frameworks that can help people evaluate whether their ideas make any sense, whether their business models make any sense. And in this MOOC, we had 500 students whom we selected who did their own business plans as part of the MOOC. I think this is what we need. Public policy is very important in the healthcare. A healthcare system needs to be funded, needs to be regulated, but in the system need to be able to have the tools to make it happen. All too often, even if they start something, their ideas, if I build it, they will come and all too often, they do not come. We've been speaking with Regina Herzlinger, PhD, health industry expert, and Nancy R. McPherson, professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. You can learn more about her work at hbs.edu slash Herzlinger. That's H-E-R-Z-L-I-N-G-E-R. Reggie, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations today. It's been my great pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We often find politicians engaging in what we call Medicare, distorting an opponent's position on Medicare to scare seniors. The latest example comes from a West Virginia House race in which the incumbent uses his opponent's words on Medicaid to create Medicare. An ad from Democratic Representative Nick Rahal says that his Republican opponent, Evan Jenkins, has, quote, billionaire financial backers, a reference to the Koch brothers, who want to turn Medicare into a voucher plan that would raise seniors' out-of-pocket costs by $6,000. That's an outdated reference to a 2011 House Republican budget plan by Representative Paul Ryan, who has significantly revised his plan since. It may or may not increase seniors' costs. But then the ad says Jenkins is comfortable with raising seniors' out-of-pocket costs, saying, quote, he said seniors should have some financial skin in the game and think harder about going to the doctor. But it turns out the quote from Jenkins wasn't about Ryan's plan or Medicare. He was talking about the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act and West Virginia's move to charge Medicaid recipients a nominal copay to prevent the overuse of health care services. Medicaid is a joint federal-state insurance program for the low income. Medicare is for seniors age 65 and over. The new co-pays allowed by the Obama administration in 2013 are $8 for a non-emergency visit to an emergency room and doctor visit co-pays ranging from 0 to $4 depending on income levels. It's true that about 6 million low-income seniors have both Medicare and Medicaid coverage, which covers long-term care. But West Virginia's rules exempt individuals in nursing homes or hospice from any Medicaid co-pays. Check our website for the facts behind other scary claims about Medicare. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, 
Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Derek Kayongo was a young refugee living in Africa, he learned the true meaning of survival. Child of war can be simply described as a kid caught between a rock and a hard place. It's finding all your pieces and trying to put them back together. Rescued by an aid organization and brought to the United States, he knew he had to do something to make a difference in the lives of those many children left behind children displaced by war, orphaned by disease, living in extreme poverty. 2.4 million children die each year from lack of access to basic sanitation. We have about 2 million kids that die of sanitation issues, mainly because they don't wash their hands. And when Kayongo learned that hotels around the United States dispose of 800 million bars of soap every year, he knew that was a resource to tap into. Housekeeping. 800 million bars of soap that the hotels throw away in the U.S. alone every year. He founded the Global Soap Project. The discarded soaps are gathered and processed at a plant that sanitizes, melts, and reforms new bars of soap that will be distributed around the world to children and families living in poverty or in disaster zones like Haiti. And with it, the children are given lessons in basic hygiene, some learning for the first time how to thoroughly wash their hands and why. The Global Soap Project earned Koyungo the distinction of one of CNN's hero finalists, and he was also a winner in the annual Classy Awards, which support philanthropic work that improves health and wellness around the globe. A simple idea, repurposing the waste of soap and providing one of the most simple tools of hygiene to those in need around the world, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.